Alright, alright, alright. Welcome to the Eighth Note Sessions. I'm Devin Mullen. And I'm Mike Shamil. And today we're joined by Isabel and Max, uh, members of the, the the specter of Tina Panic Noise. Folks, this is a seance, and, and we're so lucky to have them come to join us in conversation. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thanks Thank for having us. Yeah. Thank you. Beautiful. Um, so I, I wanted to start this interview off uh, with, well, uh, reading a, a bio uh, from the band. So Tina Panic Noise is Isabel, Max, Shen, and Justin, born out of the boredom with mundane white cis-hetero society and its ever-deepening desire to oppress. Tina seeks to address the issues of the mentally ill, the queer, and the looked down upon. Formed in Buffalo, NY, she is screaming to be heard above the rusted machinery, corruption, and cold winters. What a bio. Uh, to, to start off with, I wanted to talk to you both about the process of being boldly political with, with music, um, specifically with punk where where that comes from and uh why um well for for me well okay so i mean you always say you know write what you know and i don't necessarily believe that i i think that you can write whatever you want but when i started writing the lyrics that would eventually form into the first tina panic noise songs I was trying so hard to navigate through an intensely just desperate mental health space. And so I started writing these songs and that was all I could think about. It was all I could process. And a lot of the songs, especially at that time, were about different things that I was experiencing. They, they didn't really seem connected, but for me, they were, they were wild. They were very intensely connected. Um, and then after, as it, as it grew and I began to look at what I was writing more and more, I started to look at my history of what my, I think at that point I'd been out uh, just about three years. Because I came out, yeah, I came out in 2013. We started writing these songs in 2016. Um, just about three years I had been out and uh, I was thinking a lot about my experiences with that. And then also being Latina and my experiences there and just everything and, and it kind of culminated into this very angry sound and i needed i needed to get that out mm -hmm. what, what i really appreciate and, about i'm oh, sorry uh what i what uh -huh. i really appreciate about that is that it's sort of a you know a, a call back to the radical roots of punk which is very much concerned with with the social commentary with the sort of raging against the you know either the stodginess or the the ignorance of, of mainstream society um as as i said it's it's definitely a choice though um do you do you find that in this community that there's a a, a cohort of people uh you know either either punk musicians or in other forms who are generally speaking engaging with this kind of social critique in their music i i would say for the most part yes i think that are, are you speaking strictly from buffalo perspective yeah i, I would say locally because globally yeah. and anything's possible yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> globally um, i think that buffalo buffalo is so interesting 
you know, we are, uh, we have some friends in Pittsburgh who describe Buffalo as um, Pittsburgh, but years behind because we, our steel fell out so much longer. And that's like, the, that's like the classic uh, evolution of Rust Belt mm-hmm. cities. Your steel falls out and or your industry, whatever yeah, falls out. Your industry is. And then over some time, there's some cultural revolution that happens and then you become a more woke city and then you get hyper gentrified, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so we are in this early stages of gentrification, I think. Um, even though Buffalo is extremely gentrified, it's 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 nowhere near the level of Pittsburgh and Chicago and Philadelphia mm-hmm. to some aspects. And yeah, um, certainly see it when you travel around these other cities that have become very much that way. Yeah, and so I think that uh, because we're slightly behind, we can kind of see the painting on the wall. And so I think there is this this desperate anger amongst a lot of our our musical community that's just like I mean, it's just rage. Whether we know what to do with that rage, whether we're channeling that rage into the right areas, it, that's, I mean, that's, that's up to everyone's individual interpretation. But I think that, that yeah, there's a, there's a, a weirdly, like, deep rage in this city that's really interesting to witness. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, again, though, I think where perhaps some different groups differ is, you know, just in how focus that is if it's focused uh and what on what it gets focused on too um one thing where i think tina panicoise was a little more unusual it was in the direct focus on discussing kind of more or less the um the day-to-day reality of being a queer person of being especially a trans person um which is bell's lyrics you know some of the songs chemical castration you know, particularly very, very directly addressed. And um, it is something you don't hear as much in music, both, you know, broad, Buffalo and in a broader sense. So that was something I think niche-wise that we, we filled nicely, you know, in that time. So it's sort of a, a change of tact. Um, generationally speaking, we, we, we spoke about this in our pre-interview conversation. Um, this sort of return to a more combative, direct form of self-advocacy, um, specifically with the queer community, specifically with uh, trans folk and, and you know trans women of color uh, in, in particular. Um, do, do you think do you think that the the circumstances of the day? trans rights are under attack at the at the legislative and social political level that being not not belligerent but being more directly confrontational with things is sort of a necessary tact to take um that sort of sitting back and kind of you know just enduring everything forever uh might, might not carry as much water as as common wisdom would suggest so I put this. I think that there is um, well, there's there's somewhat of a difference between general advocacy and self advocacy, in my opinion. I think that being openly and visibly trans is in itself a combative act. Mm-hmm. I I I personally have no desire to pass within the the social construct. I'm very you know it's taken me a very long time, but I'm very comfortable with how I look, how I sound. I know that very often people clock me immediately like, oh, you're trans. Um, and I still get scared and stuff. And I, I generally let it roll off of me. Or, but I immediately, every time go, it's ma'am. Mm-hmm. 
or honestly, my thing is you don't have to gender me. My every day that I walk out the door, being honest with myself, it, it is a combative act. I'm I'm I have to kind of walk out the door with my fists raised, like what's gonna happen? Um, I think in a larger sense, uh, yeah, there is a, a level of combativeness that has to happen with advocacy. You have to be willing to speak up, speak loud, and speak for your siblings. Um, but I think also too that that also comes in the hand of where true allyship lies. I think that. Um, especially when it comes to people who are visibly trans, people aren't always willing to be so, so upfront with their allyship. Um, I've been very, very blessed that you know, my best friend in the world is, is extremely willing to stand next to me. Right. And there's been times where I've kind of like overheard him defending me when people have been shitty with me. Um, I'll never forget one time we were outside a bar and somebody was just being awful. And I, and I usually do good holding my own. And he knows that when I'm in like, an argument with somebody, I just just let me do my thing because yeah. I'm in like chess mode. I'm like, I want to fight verbally. <laughs> and I, I got frustrated with the dude and I threw my cigarette and walked away. It was it was beautifully dramatic, very cinematic. Mm-hmm. I was like, fine, and I just walked away. And before I could get into the bar, I I heard him like take a deep inhale and then just go, listen, and just like tear this person just like down. Like I don't think he I don't yeah, I'm not much of a fighter typically t- t- like verbally or otherwise. I yeah. Generally a non-confrontational individual, but yeah. Sometimes something just 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 pisses you off enough. <laughs> like, you know, what you guys are what Is was saying about the idea of um the expression of self as as an act of defiance. You know, it, it calls to mind the, that idols album, uh, Joy is an act of resistance. And I remember well, admittedly that was, you know, that album was kinda up or down for me musically yes, and lyrically speaking. Um the idea of its title, though, I remember resonated with me intensely when I first heard it, because I was like, yeah, that is the statement to me that I've been, like, kind of feeling in myself for a while. And, you know, the idea of just being happy um, with who you are and not being afraid of that is a very defined act sometimes, especially when you are an odd, uh, when you're not you know, a particularly mainstream person, you know, when your politics aren't mainstream, your race is, uh, or your, your gender is, is, uh, if, if you're a minority person, you know, that can be extremely difficult to just feel comfortable in that. And I remember that that resonated with me very deeply, the idea of protest being kind of within the self, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, it's, I very, very it's, it's a very gravitic, uh, statement that that existing is itself a transgressive act. Um, you know, in you said that you, you came out initially in, in 2013. Um, you know, my 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 view on it, uh, having a, a younger brother who's trans. You know, I'm I'm being educated constantly on. He's way more uh, into the history of of you know. Um, of all that, and and the the discourse is constantly evolving on it. Have you, uh, Isabel, in, in your own time, seen any kind of uh, real progress on on the needle, or is it really just the same bullshit every day, just of like a different variation? You know what what is it? That's a really good question. So, oh, okay, this is how the timeline goes in my head. Um, I came out in April. April 12th 
of 2013. I almost looked at you for confirmation, like you were. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know the date that I came? That sounds right to me. It does. It sounds right. April 12th of 2013. Um, and that summer, Orange Is the New Black came out, and that was really that was a really interesting moment because Laverne Cox was suddenly front and center. This beautiful, tall, black trans woman who was very vocal. She refused to uh, answer any invasive questions. She was she was a positive, just like just presence in the media, just right there. And still, as I, I don't say wasn't, I just mean that there was that was that was like the first person I can remember, especially you know trans people are always in media, but we're usually the butt of jokes. I mean, you watch mm-hmm. movies even as early as, as recent as like 2010, and there's just like transphobic jokes all over the place. I mean, I I love love the show. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. It's one of my all time favorite comedies. The one running thing on that show that I really, really struggle with, and I think they kind of managed to evolve enough to kind of leave it at a point that was tolerable, was the whole joke of um, Rob McElhaney with this um, transgender woman. And, you know, how it keeps getting played for laugh, like, oh, bro, you can see your dick, you know? And it's like, you know, I remember even the first time watching the show being like, "Mm, I feel like that's a bit dated. And now when I watch it, it's like, Makes me like very, very uncomfortable watching. Yeah. It's like this is wildly, wildly insensitive. So, you so know, when so when that was happening, way. yeah. So when that was happening was really interesting because it was like one of the first positive things like I remember seeing, and that kind of opened a national discourse. I remember I think it was like the year after that LeBron Cox was on the cover of Time magazine, <laughs> and it just kind of it just kind of kept going from there and so i've watched the discourse evolve over the last almost 10 years over the time that i've been out so complexly and it's been wild i mean it's been nuts so to answer your question yeah i've seen it i've seen it change a lot (laughs) it still comes to the same bullshit in the sense of like there's always going to be this this group of people always saying like you know, you want us to change how we think to, to, to match your delusions. And, and my thing is like, and I've explained this to so many people, you don't have to like, you don't, you don't have to like me. I, cause chances are, I don't like you. You need to show me the most basic form of respect because I'm going to show that to you regardless. <laughs> I'm always a big believer in like, you know, you show people respect. You just, you just do that. Even when you're angry with somebody, I'm, you know, if, if I if I'm loathing somebody, chances are I am not raising my voice, I'm not swearing, I'm speaking complete sentences, because my thing is that like I'm never going to be the one to lose my head. And you just got to show me that in return. Just just show me that in return. I'm going to be fine. And so th- that exists on a day to day. You know, that's never changed since I've been out. And from people that I know that are older, that's always been the way it is. But in terms of how how we discuss these things, how we choose as a community to communicate with each other, to communicate with the outside world and move forward in, in a socio-political landscape, that's evolved a ton. I mean, I, I see it in the form of the fact that people actually express their outrage now. Not, not, not even express. The fact that people are outraged when these things, you know, happen now. I mean, um, we spoke very, very briefly and non-specifically about Dave Chappelle in the uh, lead up here to, to the interview. But I, I imagine if that special had come out about 10 years ago, if it even got noted, it would have been such a blip on the radar. Yeah. That this is basically now calling 
into question Netflix's validity as like an organization to some people. You know, that, that um, the fact that Netflix fired somebody who's trans in the uh, wake of that. Um, it's, and it's and big, the media big. is noticing. Yeah. You know, I mean, I see it blow up constantly on my social media. And I, to me, while I'm not particularly active on social media myself, seeing that this outrages people is an encouraging thing to me. Yeah. That people are, you know, willing to stand up because people need to be willing to stand up before anything is going to be changed. You know? Yeah. So everything, and and I agree with that. I agree with that, and the um, as well your your point of basically just respecting human dignity, and and all things yeah. you know, because that's that's really the best starting point you can have for an interaction. Um, something I wanted to touch on though with this idea of openly expressing outrage is um. In our pre-interview conversation, also we were talking about uh, th this idea of uh, generations within the queer community and the sort of fractious relationship that that exists between generations. Um, you know, harkening back to, to Stonewall and and the AIDS crisis and the sort of severing of the chain, if you like, uh, that that caused. Um, you said that Gen Zers, which is for the folks at home, uh, basically younger folks who are just coming up, who are entering at this point young adulthood and, and really contending with the forces of the world. You drew a fairly distinct uh, uh, separation between uh, the, these Gen Zers and, and Millennials in the sense of, of caution. On expressing outrage, um, could you could you speak a little bit more on that? Yeah. Um, so I, I think that uh, I was saying I think I was saying this in the pre-interview that I, I I love I love the Gen Z is so ready to just like war like they just they wake up and they choose violence and there's a part of me that loves that I love that I love that that brazen fearlessness it's it's beautiful and I love meeting young queer people, young trans people, um, especially when I meet trans people who are like in their early teens. I mean, I didn't, I didn't have those resources. I mean, I, I would say in retrospect, yeah, I knew what was going on, but at the moment, you know, no, I didn't. And I had no idea. Not concrete. No, not, not concretely, but if I had had the resources, if I had had the access to the representation in the media that we do now, I probably would have come out when I was in high school. And so I love meeting teenagers who are out I'm like that's great that's that's good that's so good for you and they then of course to miss a decade of their life more or less yeah and I, and, and it was the part of my maternal instinct that's like let me let me take care of you what do you need i will be the mom like what do you need and like, that's beautiful that's great um but i do i do get worried um for a couple things you had brought up that uh there's no caution there's no exercising not, caution not no caution it's just i think what I see sometimes is this idea of I have no fear. Nothing makes me afraid. And, you know, perhaps this comes from the place of me being a fairly anxious, uh, introspective person. But I, I always kind of, you know, it's almost like the Yoda in me, like, you will be. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. like, there's a lot that, frankly, we should be afraid of. And not that that should stop us, not that that should stop us from doing what is right. But I think, you know, action without 
caution, action without fear can be just as damaging and just as irresponsible, especially when it gets to the idea of like collateral damage. You know, mm-hmm. when we start speaking for a community that hasn't necessarily asked to be spoken for, yeah. that can cause quite a bit of damage. Yeah, it's been seen many, many times throughout history, and uh, if we're not careful, we'll be seen again. You know, I think another thing that that I think is a very big uh, generational divide between millennial queers and and Gen Z queers. And I'm still trying to figure out personally if if I think this is a for better or worse kind of thing, um, is the idea of safe spaces and discussion. Mm-hmm. And because there's a part of me that's like, obviously I think it's important to have safe spaces. It's important to sit down and discuss these are my pronouns, this is how I feel about these words, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also a part of me that's like, the world does not give a fuck. Yeah, yeah the world is indifferent. The world's completely <laughs> indifferent to how you feel about it. And you need to learn to assert yourself in spite of that. The world, uh, there was somebody, I can't remember her name. Um, she had a great video about this, but she was like, the world doesn't have a trigger warning. Life doesn't have a trigger warning. No, it certainly and, doesn't. And you can't the more we cultivate online an online presence of like everything has a trigger warning the kind of more dangerous it is when you're navigating the political landscape of the world because like you can't stop and go sorry are you about to call me a slur they're just gonna call you the slur right and like that's isn't this like weird joke i like i feel like you and I have kind of joked about this a few times, like the idea of like, oh, I'm sorry that I used the wrong slur on you. Oh yeah, let me so- correct myself. Like, let me let me be more respectful and use the correct, correct slur. slur. On you. Yeah, like, it's that's- weird, you know, like weird sort of surreal changes that woke culture creates. Not necessarily in a bad way, just like it's it's very surreal. Sometimes. It's super surreal. And so I get I get worried about that with younger generations because I'm like. Like, but there's also part of me too that's like, no, I mean, like, you should be advocating for those things. You should no, want, absolutely. you should want trigger warnings for life, but that doesn't, yeah, you know, I want, I, I want to be able to walk around at three in the morning. Yeah, I mean, I, I, had, I had two kids who I went to elementary school. If I grew up um, for several years in Syracuse, these two kids went there, um, and you know, they kind of came in the middle of the school year. And they were like these kind of two weird kids. And, you know, we were all kind of like, oh, let's deal with these kids. And we very quickly found out, oh, they're from a place called Bosnia. It's in Europe. There's a war there, you know. And we were like, oh, okay, whatever. You know, second grade, you know, understanding is, you know, those those kids didn't have, uh, and their families didn't have any opportunity or uh, warning as to what was about to happen in their lives. It just happened to them in the most awful horrific way you know and uh thank god those guys got out my friends you know who did um who i I made when i was a kid but you know uh this is the reality of the world and this is a world that you know really is only that was only 20 some years ago i mean there's still things like this happening very much to this day in this country in this country um yeah, yeah there's... I think does that answer? I, I, I kind of feel like we got on a sidetrack. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's yeah. it's an interesting point. I I don't want to get too deep in, into it because uh, it's well, a lot of it's philosophical, um, which means it's worth yes. talking about, but maybe not talking about for too long because you can get lost in it. Yeah, yeah, certainly With, not. <laughs> it has been a while though since we were last in the philosophy zone. 
Um, I, my, my sort of response to that would just be that safe spaces inherently are reactive and they are reacting to a fundamental callousness in, in the world. Um, yeah. They're not in and of themselves a, a cure for the world's ills. At, at best, yeah. Yeah. you know, they, they sort of engender the sense of community and confidence within people to give free expression, but they're, they're not exactly. the, the final answer to everything. I agree. And they should. Yeah. You know, I think exactly. that's where I get concerned is with this assumption that like, oh, well, this, this will continue and no, it won't. Yeah, it's, you know, childhood and, and in your youth should be a safe thing. It should be a time to learn who you are safely and in and, and a cultivating, nurturing environment. But we also have to be prepared for childhood to end one day. You know. I mean, people people have to have the ability to sort of flourish in chaos. I mean, to to a degree with things, you can give yourself this illusion of control on how other people yeah, are going to yeah. act, and yeah, it's it's to no good end. Um, There's a lot of things I've learned in my life that I hope people don't have to learn the way I learned them. So exactly. you know, yeah, I always try to do a little bit better for the next. Yeah, yeah. Those those hard lessons, while they um, really help you grow a lot. Um, it's not always the most preferred way to grow, yeah. you know. <laughs> There's a reason why it's called the hard way. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, part of you always wants to take that, you know, experience and be like, hey, all right, I already I already figured out the hard math here. Here's here's the, the, the gist of what you need to know. Just just take that yeah. piece and don't worry about how I got there. My children someday. Yeah, you know? that's, yeah when, I mean, how will it teach these lessons to your children? Because yeah. I'm not. I'll be on to your kids, and that's kind of a yeah. That's kind of but, you know that yeah that idea. Yeah, how do you this get imparted to the next generation? Yeah. So speaking yep. of this this notion of growth and evolution is probably not the correct term. We'll just leave it at growth. Um, at, at the top of the interview, we, we talked kind of jokingly about uh, this being a seance for for Tina Panic Noise. Um, yeah. At, at the taping of this interview, the the project has. Just played its last show, uh, and at that Mohawk place, it, it was kind of billed as a, a funerary event a little bit. Uh, what's what's coming down the, the pipeline? I mean, is this the the end of the musical journey and its intersection with the lived life, or, or are we going on the the different things? It's time for the requiem. <laughs> uh, well, so I mean, Max and I have been, we've mentioned already, we've been friends for long. We've been friends since we were 13. And we've so, been playing music together since we were 15. Yeah. So we like, learned how to play music together effectively. Yeah. Um, so I think there's no world where we're not constantly writing music together yeah. and, and separately also. I mean, we're both, we're both very avid, just, I would say composers. I mean, we're constantly yeah, making constantly, things. constantly. So, um, no, there is stuff in the work um you know we're not nothing solid yet and so i'm like a little hesitant to, to yeah. put a face on a cloud of gas yeah exactly it, it'll i think it'll coalesce hopefully in the upcoming months yeah but um no yeah that's definitely not the end definitely, yeah. definitely not the end no certainly not certainly um, not there will be more it just won't be it won't be under the name of Tina Panic Noise. And it won't be it that sound be anymore. Probably that sound so much. Yeah. But um, I think it will be reminiscent, though, in yeah. a way, because it is still the same people creating it. Just... Yeah. So, so speaking of, of that sound being put to rest along with the band, um, 
What did the sound of Tina Panic Noise mean to you in that time period that you were making that music? That's a good question. Mm. I think for me, I, you know, I I kind of, when, when Iz was talking earlier about writing lyrics and all this, I had this kind of weird thought that I never really had before just now, but the idea of sometimes when you need somebody who can empathize with you, when you need somebody who has the same experience as you, as you and nobody else around you is like that, you know, music, lyrics, writing can be a way to create that person, create that friendship with somebody who has the same experiences as you. And for me, that was what making music like that was, you know, I just finally, there were no bands that were playing the sort of music that I wanted to make. So, you know, being able to start a band that played that kind of music was very, very uh, affirming to me, you know, almost like, you know, that idea of like, you know, I don't want to say Team of Panic Noise was my favorite band, but I always enjoyed listening to our music. And, and that was always, I think, my favorite thing about us, that I never got sick of listening to our music. Yeah, I, I one thing that I, I always stuck with was that my favorite thing that came out of it is that we wrote music that I wanted to listen to. It was, it was something that, especially at that time, because I think at that time, when we first started, my favorite bands were Coat Hangers, Leader Kinney, Mannequin mm-hmm. Pussy, um, really early Cherry Glazer. I used to listen yeah. to a lot of that first album. All fantastic bands, but Hell yeah. them were yeah. around us. They were all elsewhere, elsewhere scattered to the wind. And they so. all, and none of them really exactly did what I was looking for and mm-hmm. what you were looking for. So I think mm-hmm. it was a matter of cutting up the piece. One of our biggest influences is Screaming Females. Certainly. And, and we don't really particularly sound all that much like Screaming Females. Yeah, and we don't, we don't sound like Mannequin Pussy. We don't sound like no. Sleater Kinney. Um, but we have elements of We each. have elements of each one because we we were like, okay, well, I like this part. Where you have those influences kind of like mixed in the stew there. Yeah, and so I think that I just, I, I really wanted to make something that spoke to me. The only other album at that time that I knew of that was really speaking about trans issues was Transgender Dysphoria Blues by Against Me. Yeah. And that one was, was extremely important to me coming out. And that's a whole mm-hmm. other story, which you were there for a lot of that. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, that album really spoke to me lyrically. Wait, but musically speaking, that is not the sound we had. And that's not, yeah, no. that's not, not even a little. But. And that's, not, that's also not even my favorite against the album, sonically speaking. So, like, it's it's really interesting that we were just like, okay, like a little bit of this, a little bit of this, a little bit of this. And, and we kind of smashed it together. And I don't know, we made something that we I really liked. Something yeah. created the band that we wanted to listen to. Yeah. That's, that's to me, what was so. It was fantastic at the time. It still is on a level. But it's not necessarily the band I want to listen to all the time anymore. Yeah. So now it's time to create the new band that I want to listen to. So we killed it. Yeah, so we killed it. <laughs> stabbed in the back alley, and it's all done now. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a lot of sense, though, because oh, when, when you have something that um, no longer is, um, as you were saying in the priest conversation, when, when your life changes the the music that you were really um, in tune with before now is in tune with your past and not your present. Um, do you find it difficult to find that new sound or have you already um, discovered it or created or you know, really both um, for the period of your life that you're in now? 
Well, I think well, I think one thing that's important to note is throughout the pandemic, um, there was a couple of things that were happening, you know, particular to us. One, a lot of bands, um, a lot of our peers around here, um, took that time to really, I mean, hammer in their sound. Yeah, like coming to mind, uh, passed out. Who we just played, who we with, just played with Saturday. They've always had a really great like indie punk sound. But man, they took the pandemic to like, right? They just coalesced, like, coalesced into it. And hone it. And yeah. so good. And they've always been a band that we loved. But like, mm-hmm. we saw them a couple, about a month or so ago. Yeah. And at, I, at Nietzsche. Well, she had seen them and was like, you know, they've gotten really, really good. And then I went out and just caught the, uh, having the guy to go out right in time to see them a few weeks later. And I like texted her and I was like, Oh my God! Yeah, like, <laughs> we were like, oh, like, like really? We always knew they were good, but like, wow, like we didn't know you could be wow. So like, yeah. that was cool to watch that with our peers. But unfortunately, Max, Max is a nurse, and so we couldn't, we couldn't meet as much during the pandemic. There was mm. there was that. Uh, the partner I live with is immunocompromised, so it was just it was a lot of yeah. a lot of dangers, and so we weren't really working in and. I was going through a lot. Like I took that time to really, really work a lot in therapy and, and yeah. work on myself. And we, we kind of got to this point where every other week we were like, should we kill the band? Should we just change the sound? Should we rebrand? What are we going to do? Yeah, what are we gonna like, do? How are we fixing this? And initially we were like, we're just going to rebrand it. And then after a while, I kind of realized that like I have an association with that name already. Mm-hmm. And so we, we wanted to move and we were already starting to move more on a, a kind of post punky kind of sound. Mm-hmm. And not just that, but that's kind of a gen- general area, I can say. Um, and, I, and I think that after a while, I, I, I personally felt so associated as Tina Panic Noise aggression, yeah. vi- violent aggression, that doesn't fit anymore. It does So that was a big part of why we decided to kill it and, and maybe move in this other direction. We were already moving in. That made sense. Yeah. Yeah, take that chapter and said, all right, this was an important moment. We, you know, we're on to the next one. Yeah, yeah, it's time to write the new one. Yeah, that's cool. So my my question would be for for those who who are looking to feel the the aggressive the aggressive energy. Where where can you find the music these days? Mm. Broadly a, speaking, or Buffalo specifically? Well, no, for for Dana Panic Noise, where where are you guys at? Oh, uh, we're on. I mean, we're on Spotify. We're on Bandcamp. Yeah, uh, Spotify and Bandcamp would be the two best ways. Um, I think we're on the other ones, too. Yeah, if you ever know. run into either one of us out on the street, we've got about 5 million discs burning a hole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you run into one of us on the street and, like, have questions about it, like, it's kind of funny because, like, I, 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 I feel like people have approached us in public, and I probably look annoyed. And it's not that I'm annoyed, it's that I get kind of easily exasperated. And it's not just with music. Like, I once was at my job and someone walked in and they recognized me from my jewelry page and they were like, you're the Bruja. And I was like, what am I? Who do you, how do you know me? And so <laughs> I, but I always love hearing people's thoughts on our music. Yeah. Um, when we first started playing I'm Fine, which has weirdly become like our most popular song, mm-hmm. um, I, I would have people stopping me and being like, I love that song and, and telling me what it means to them. Mm-hmm. And I wow. loved that. Really, yeah. really loved that because when I wrote that song, it was not, I wrote it as a throwaway. I wrote it yeah. as something really stupid. It was like a tongue in cheek mm-hmm. joke for myself. 
Well, even like the the way the kind of writing came together on that, I remember Seanan is playing that, and I was kind of walking in. I don't know if I had been like outside and came back in, or if I was getting there late. And I remember hearing them play this like bass line, and I'm like, the fuck are you guys playing Black Flag? Like, why? why is that? <laughs> it's very, very similar to a Black Flag song, which I won't mention by name, but it's very, very similar structurally to that. And I didn't even realize it. And it was like, no, nah, but it's like pretty good though. Like, 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 try to come up with something. And I'm like, okay, I have like one idea. That yeah. <laughs> you roped me in, all right. <laughs> like, okay, like you know, let me try this one thing. And once I started playing the guitar riff, I'm like. No, actually, there might be something to this. Yeah. Actually, that be, I, I wasn't this actually might be kind of cool. Like, I wasn't intentionally know. trying to do anything. I was just like, I was, I wanted something, especially at that time. I was, um, I was having a lot of problems with my hands. Yeah, and it's and a so, nice box riff. It's a nice, it's it. yeah. So I didn't have to move my hands. So I was like, oh, okay, I can do this, and that's really easy. And so then he, and again, I did not think we would do anything with that at all like i never really had intentions of playing it and then we played it and then our friends who are in lung who played our our Mm -hmm. last show with us they're really close friends of ours from cincinnati uh we we put it up we recorded it again like at last second we didn't plan on recording it but like it's really quick song for the easy so we figured we'd do it and we put up a band pretty easy and i think like within 24 hours kate called me and was like that song that that's that's your that's the song that's the song and i was like really okay i mean (laughs) sure and there are songs that i think are far far more brilliantly written like from a compositional standpoint or much more clever yeah or what have you songs i thought lyrically Um, i did better on but i have to say if i was just a casual listener flipping through a band's discography and i heard that song it'd be like that's fun you know and that and that's why i uh yeah i think that one works because it's just yeah, it's fun, you know. It's, and that's and that's one that speaks. Fun. That's one that speaks the aggression. That is yeah. a song. I think that's part aggressive. Yeah, that was. And I when I wrote it, it was a. I think mm-hmm. I want to stay with about. Like, yeah, go for it. Okay, Why so it was, it was written about a character who, like, you'd be like, "Hey, how was your weekend?" And he'd be like, "Good," and then he, he wouldn't ask. ask he would never ask how you were doing. Me. He was so rude, and I hated him. And so the song was supposed to be like, "Thanks, I'm I'm fine. Thanks for asking." Yeah. Just the ultimate pettiness. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> a lot of people uh, took it to mean different things to themselves. One of our, our close, close friends, she says that the song reminds her of just like getting through your day. Like, I'm mm-hmm. doing just fine. I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. And being frustrated when people keep asking you, like, oh, how are you doing? And it's like, I'm fine. I'm fine. And I really liked that she had a completely mm-hmm. different interpretation. Other people were telling us that. And it, across the board, though, it's aggression. Mm-hmm. People are like, I'm, I'm fine. Yeah. That, that 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 pissed off i'm fine and i'm like good be pissed off feel that feel that Absolutely. so i mean to, to to sort of unify that with with the rest of the interview i mean there's something well there, there's something beautiful in that right i mean you have this this act of creation born out of you know the the hyper specificity of one's individual mm-hmm. circumstance but it, it leads to a, a universal response to it uh, we'll, we'll be sure to get that song in the credits if uh, if we can get permission to do so. Um, we are just about at time. Um, right. I just wanted to ask one question about uh, Burning Bruja and then give the last question over to my co-host, Shamil. Um, so I noticed you, you're making some pretty rad jewelry 
Uh, and I just want yeah, to hear a little you. bit about that. <laughs> yeah, um, I started making that. I started doing this stuff during the pandemic because my mom's like an avid crafter. And she got all these tools that she was getting rid of. And she was like, hey, I got this stuff. Do you want it? And I had taken like a jewelry making class with our old neighbor, Mar- Mary Mariana. Yeah. And and she was like, and she was like, oh, I'm taking this class. And Mariana was just like cute as a button. And she was like, do you want to come to this class with me? And I was like, whatever, whatever you want to do. Yeah, whatever. Sure. And so we went, we had a really great day. And I, that class was like two years ago. So I, my mom had these tools and I was just kind of like messing around. And I was like, well, this is kind of fun. And it just became like a thing for me to hyper focus on during the pandemic. Um, I grew up practicing witchcraft. I'm, I'm still an, an avid practicer, practitioner. Um, practice every day. Uh, it's very important to me, and I'm also a really I, I love um, Satanist music because I think there is a, a particular I don't know. There's a string in there that resonates with me. I'm a big fan of Lingua Ignota and Chelsea Wolf, uh, even though they're not clear, they're not specifically Satanist. That kind of dark atmosphere, mm. and so I started making these these pieces while listening to this music and. It kind of came together. I had no intention of it being a thing that I ever really shared with anybody, but I was running out of space to put the jewelry. And my partner was like, you got to do something with this. Like, I don't wear a lot of jewelry. <laughs> I wear very simple stuff. I don't wear really complicated stuff that I make. And so my partner was like, you got to please find some place to put this. And I was like, yeah, I'll give some stuff away. So I put it on Facebook and, and Instagram. Being like, if anyone wants to like toss me a couple bones for this, like, cool. And then it just kind of, yeah, blew up. I really liked it. Yeah, and that was and that was really nice because I had my big thing lately is people have been giving me pieces of jewelry from past loved ones or just even pieces from when they were they they broke forever ago and they want back and they want made into new things and I've been able to revitalize. Um, I just did a pair of earrings for somebody who uh, the main thing they wanted was these antique spoons that were their mother's. Their mother had passed away a few months ago. And so they had asked me to take these these antique spoon handles and some other jewelry and make it into these set earring sets. And I did, and I, and that was really beautiful. I got to, to work with this this trusted piece. Mm-hmm. And so that's been yeah, that's that's been really important to me lately. Wow. Well now so you're going back to school now, hopefully. Oh yeah, so I'm I also recently just applied to learn how to do metalworking. So I will hopefully be making metals and making more complex stuff so that's yeah. the next step is is getting uh even more complex and making my own metals and stuff but so yeah beautiful that's awesome uh glad to hear that you have a, a lot of different projects um you know on the uh on the upcoming um my last question for the night is um you know kind of tapping back to um the differences between the um gen z and the millennial queers what would be a good way to reach out to those um younger members of the community and short sort of share experiences with them help them not feel like they're alone like what 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 ways uh do you recommend that people can start with from your own experiences um that's a really good question i think uh, well, I mean, the internet, the internet's great for that as much as it is bad for that. The internet can easily create echo chambers. Weirdly enough, the thing that I saw over the last year, TikTok. TikTok's created a lot of discourse, again, for better or worse. But I will say that I have felt that the majority of discourse on there has been positive. Um, I, I think that the important thing 
I think the important thing too, though, is not just for Gen Z, but for millennials, we need to be a lot more patient because we, we tend to get very frustrated when Gen Z doesn't listen to us immediately in terms of like, this is how we experiencing things. And we get frustrated to listen to us. And I'm like, but there's literally still kids. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it's, it's so ironic to me. I feel this all the time when I think about when I was 18 or 19 and people who were like 30 would be like, well, you'll see in a few years. And I was just like, shut up. Shut your mouth. <laughs> and now, now you're that person, you know. I'm like, oh, we'll see in a few years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen that so much. And there's like a term that we're all throwing around of like, please go outside and touch some grass. And you like, get off. But also like, yeah, I remember being when I was like first out, I was 20 and like older. And granted, like there was a yeah. lot of, stuff that i still disagree with like, yeah a lot of it was just people being genuine assholes but, like there's a couple of things that people were like like i was so hyper focused on like i need to pass i need to make mm-hmm. sure and i need to lose all this weight mm-hmm. and i need to do this and do that and there were people who were just slightly older than me mm-hmm. that were trained who had been out longer who were like you're gonna see that that is not as important as your mental like you're gonna yeah. see that that's not the important aspect of of your mental health and I was like, you don't know anything, but they did. And, they, and I was so wrong. Yeah, exactly. It turns out that like, no, making sure I'm happy is the most important thing. And, and I think that that's kind of the discourse we need to have with, with each other is like, what are asking each other, how are you doing? And I think the other thing too, that's, I think yeah. maybe for our generation, the millennial generation to remember, try and remember how hard it was to accept that somebody maybe knows a little more than you when you were like 18 or 19. Like, try to remember that you yeah. know, when, when dealing with the younger generation, because, you know, it isn't easy to, to have to admit that somebody maybe knows a little something more than you. So that patience that you talk about, I think is critical. Yeah. Critical. I hope that answered your question. Absolutely, thank you. Yeah, of course. Well, on, on that positive note, folks, Patience reigns. Show patience and, and basic human dignity to everyone. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's about the best you can do. It, you know, it's all controlled yeah. chaos from there on out. All right. I'm Devin Mullen. <laughs> I'm Mike Shamil. And this has been that's Isabel okay. and Max and from the, 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 the specter of Tina Panic Noise. <laughs> we'll catch you next time. Thank you. Here's an excerpt from the song I'm Fine by Tina Panic Noise. You can check out all their old music on Bandcamp. When you look at me And pay attention The Eighth Note Sessions are produced by Music is Art. Help keep programs like this going by donating today at musicisart.org. Thank you for listening.